Welcome to the EMJ podcast. I'm Ellen Weber, Editor-in-Chief of the Emergency Medicine Journal. Today, our guest is Dr. Katherine Henderson, the President of the Royal College of Emergency Medicine, who's here to discuss everybody's favorite topic, COVID-19. Now, before we begin, I just want to say that perhaps something that's obvious, which is that COVID-19 has affected all of us in the way we live and the way we work. And this discussion is going to be equally relevant to you, whether you are an emergency physician, an emergency nurse or paramedic, or a dermatologist or gastroenterologist, because as we know, many things are going to have to change. So let me welcome Dr. Henderson. Thank you for joining us. Very good to be here. Thank you very much, Helen. So my first uh, question for you is when you were elected, the, the big fanfare about your election was that you were the first woman president of RCAM. However, did you have any idea that you were going to be the first president overseeing the college through a global pandemic? Well, clearly not. Um, that seemed a very unlikely uh, occurrence to happen, but it sort of cleared up a few things very early on, um, which was that we'd been often asking for attention to be on emergency medicine and one thing that a global pandemic does makes people realize what their emergency services do. Indeed. So let me start with a tough question. Was emergency medicine prepared for a pandemic? So I think the specialty was prepared for a pandemic. I think emergency medicine spends a lot of time thinking about major incident planning. It is very nimble when it has challenges and it has an ability to go, right, this is the situation. What do we need to adapt? What do we need to change? How do we deal with the the problem that is presented to us? The part that wasn't so prepared for a pandemic was our our actual estate, our facilities. Emergency departments over the years, particularly in the United Kingdom, have become quite tired facilities. They're not great for infection control. They're not big enough for the number of patients that are coming through. And they're certainly not big enough for the concept of social distancing. And so our actual uh, kit and where we were working made it quite a struggle to get prepared quickly. And there was a lot of um, rapid adaptation of the physical environment that had to happen. And if we were doing this sort of thing all again, I think we need to be thinking very much about the physical space that emergency care happens in. We saw tents being put up outside hospitals all around the world, and that's because everybody was having exactly the same problem. And so, of course, one of the bigger issues is the fact that emergency departments have just expanded their capacity over time, or at least their their patient load, without improvement or expansion of facilities or staff. So I think one of the big issues for emergency medicine that we've had has been our crowding and the fact that we have continued to take on many, many patients in the same facilities that we've had and with the same number of staff. Um, So what did you see done to deal with that? So we started this pandemic probably in one of the worst places we've ever been. Our departments were more crowded, less well-staffed than they had ever been. And we had reached the point where I had been campaigning to, you know, for my presidency on eliminating corridor care, eliminating keeping patients in corridors before they get to the ward. So they're boarding in somewhere that's deeply unsuitable in a time of contagion. So the adaptations were a realization that that just could not happen. 
we couldn't have a situation where we would have COVID patients and non-COVID patients in the same physical space. And so the very earliest adaptations that departments had to go through were splitting themselves, dividing in two. And that has great staffing implications as well. You have to then staff essentially two emergency departments, one COVID, one non-COVID. Now, that was made easier by the fact that this was a global pandemic and everyone was realising that was the case. And a lot of other work in the hospitals were, was shutting down. And so staff were redeployed. Uh, we had a lot of staff brought into both emergency departments and intensive care units who had some of the skills that are needed in these specialties and they joined our teams. And so our teams expanded tremendously. Bit of training, bit of induction, you know, get some, some core principles applied to these people with a little bit of warning that we all had. Um, but we had to do that pretty fast so that we could say, right, when a patient presents, how are we going to direct them to a safe area for their needs? And that happened very quickly. And uh, do you think that that can continue the way we've been working now? I and mean, you had all the staff coming to you and uh, surgeries were, were shut down, but now the hospitals clearly have to get back to business as usual. So what's going to happen now? Well, I don't think anyone's going to ever get back to business as usual, or at least not for several years. So I think business as usual is no longer the the... The, the, even the aspiration of most places. What we're all trying to get back to is some way of working that keeps people safe, but gets the, the normal business of a hospital up and running again, but in a safe way. So no, it's impossible to carry on running t essentially two emergency departments with two streams. And so we're all having to adapt as to how do we keep uh, patients safe. Now, one of the things that obviously happened, and I think it was a bit of a surprise to everybody, was just how much uh, the A&E attendances dropped off. And this has been an international phenomenon. Every country that's got emergency care has seen this dramatic reduction in the other patients coming to emergency departments. And that brought us a bit of time and leeway to think about this. Now, some of those patients were patients you would expect not to be coming. They're, you know, people are not crashing cars, they're not falling off ladders at work, they're not going out and getting food poisoning, all those sorts of things you would expect to not happen. But the thing that was a bit disconcerting was the patients who are not presenting with heart attacks and not presenting with strokes didn't really feel that the drop-off there was a safe drop-off. But what it has done is given everybody an opportunity to go what is it that an emergency department really, really needs to be able to provide for patient care? What is our core business? And we've always said our core business is the management of the acutely ill and the acutely injured. But we've ended up, and again, this is an international phenomenon, we've ended up being the safety net for the system. We need to go back to being the safety net for the patient, but we cannot just take on everything else as a this is where you go just because it's there. And so we've had a bit of a chance after the big peak of COVID and the amazing amount of, of cooperative work that there was with other teams to start taking a long, hard look at what it is that we deliver in emergency departments and how do we make sure that we don't go back to that pre-COVID world of appalling crowding 
adverse outcomes for patients because you're in a crowded department and the stress and morale destruction of working in a crowded department for staff. And given that so much of this is that we have been the safety net, how can we avoid being the safety net? Is that in our hands? Do we have to ha have people, other people helping us avoid being the safety net? That's exactly the, the, the difficulty. It isn't in our hands. Emergency departments have always had elastic walls. We've basically taken everybody and we could never say we were full while every other part of the system you know, was able to say, no, sorry, we don't have any more appointments. And so, yes, we do need the help of other people and we need the buy-in from other people to make this possible. So I think we have to say that we will always be the safety net for the patient because there will be patients who are in desperate need or are vulnerable or don't have English as their first language in the UK or don't have a smartphone to be able to get advice any other way. We're going to always have to provide that service. But by working with other services, we can start having some decision making about how patients come, how the input part of the equation um, has got some control applied to it. And in the UK, that's about thinking about how people use primary care, how people use the national number in the UK, that's the 111 number, to get advice and be directed to services. But to make this work, we're going to need to have an offering that is better than the current offering or the previous offering. So it's got to be that not only do you not have crowded departments, but you get the, the medical advice in a timely way that you think you need. So we have to have an, our national advice service or triage service um, being able to provide a clinically valid, promptly answered, uh, you know, complicated set of questions um, service to patients to make it work for them. But what we're really talking about and what we're trying to work with um, services is, is to say, there's patients who will not be directed to an emergency department, they'll be directed to other services and expanding what those other services will be. So traditionally they've been primary care or self-care or pharmacy care or an emergency department. Um, but we're going to try and get them to include hot clinics for specialty patients. So one of the things that drives um, a great deal of work in an emergency department is a patient who's got a complicated medical history, is very well known to an inpatient team, but needs advice. Doesn't necessarily need admission, but needs advice. And the only way that they can get that is by turning up at the ED. And then some poor ED physician spends the next hour acting as a kind of Rolodex, acting as a phone book, trying to hunt down the right person to give advice. They're not adding any clinical value to the patient's journey. All they're doing is a, being a broker of how to get advice. And we need to think differently about that. We can't have that as, as the way that happens because often these patients are exactly the most vulnerable, the ones who um, need to be protected from COVID um, because of their you know, complex medical history. And the last thing they need to be doing is sitting around in an emergency department. And so given that this has never happened before, um, how is Arkham approaching trying to get this new world started? Well, you're absolutely right. Nothing in the past has ever made a difference to patient attendance except for a global pandemic. A global pandemic has demonstrated that a lot of low acuity 
uh, patients could get healthcare another way or didn't in the end need to come to a hospital setting. So we're running this very, very difficult um, balancing act of trying to get the patients who need to come back to have confidence to come back and at the same time getting the message out that patients should go through the 111 service. And so we're working furiously and cooperatively with anybody that will talk to us, in particular in the UK, NHS England, um, to plan how we can set up schemes called Think 111 or Talk Before You Walk to get people to use these services and to make sure that the experience they get is better than their previous experience. We're talking to the specialist societies so that they agree that they have responsibility to provide advice systems for primary care and for their patients so that patients don't end up coming up to the emergency department. And we're basically talking to anybody who that we can talk to and cooperating with anyone that we can um, get cooperation from about how do we move patients through the system if they are there. So if somebody does come and they do need admission, how is it that the organization is going to take responsibility for moving that patient on in a timely way, rather than the great trolley waits that we've had in the past, you know, literally thousands of patients on trolleys in corridors, because that will be absolutely unacceptable in a, in a COVID endemic world. And so convincing people of the argument and of the need um, making sure that there are good levers for change to get people moved through the system, that everything is done that means that only patients who need the skills, the facilities, the, the technical know-how of a hospital ever need to come to the hospital and that everything else, you know, whether it's this is via te technology, um, you know, video conferencing or whatever, patients can get advice but don't necessarily need to just have that oh, we'll go up to the emergency department. So it's a long shot to get it to work, but if we could just move the dial a little, if we could just stop the ever increasing numbers, if we could just push it back down slightly and at the same time guard the most vulnerable so that they're not getting stuck in an area where cross-infection is a risk, nosocomial infection, is so dangerous, um, we, um, you know, we will feel that we've, we've had some success. And is there anything you've seen up till this point in the pandemic that gives you hope that people will take on, specialists, for example, will take on more responsibility after hours, um, that they will not be sort of the reflex to send the patient to the emergency department? I think there is. I think there's a, a recognition that patients could come to harm. Now, to be absolutely honest, in crowding before, patients were coming to harm. But in this sort of situation, when you've got a patient who's got lots of comorbidities, is on complex medication, specialist teams very often feel very protective of those patients. And so when it's couched in narrative, they get it. And I think if we can get the clinical leaders of those teams to also be saying the same thing, I think we're beginning to see a shift in attitude, which says, you know what, we can do this better. We can provide a better service. We possibly can even reduce admissions and length of stay. So some of the admissions might well be, get them admitted under the medics, we'll see them in the morning type admissions. Well, let's just not do that anymore. 
and some of it might be length of stay. Actually, a patient gets the, the secondary care opinion quickly, working around diagnostics, thinking, let's think about what we really need in diagnostics. Let's not do things that we don't really need. Let's be very professional um, and have a conversation about what diagnostics should and shouldn't be done in certain situations so that we are making the most effective use of what is going to have to be a prioritized health service and work together. And I suppose the big thing that's hope is there has been incredible working together. I've never seen so much breaking down of picket fences, you know, anti-silo working, appreciation of people's problems, sharing of solutions and determination to make things better. Before we finish up, I do want to ask you a little bit about what you've seen from the emergency physicians you've worked with. How have they coped? Um, what can we do to support them? So one of the difficult stories that has come out of the COVID pandemic in the UK and in other countries has been the health inequalities that have been highlighted by this pandemic, the realization that parts of our society have been much more affected than others. And in amongst that has been what's happened with healthcare workers, and in amongst that is what's happened with people in emergency departments, the staff in emergency departments. Because right from the beginning, we've been aware that we're going to be seeing a lot of patients with COVID, and there has been the need for protection. And the whole personal protection story was really difficult early on. People feeling that they didn't have the right personal um, protection equipment and us having to fight to get a recognition that the undifferentiated patient represented a risk and that a recess room was very similar to a NHDU or ITU environment in terms of what's happening in it with aerosol generation procedures and that we needed to have the right kit. And that fight early on was actually a big distraction and made people feel quite anxious about this pandemic because it's very different from a major incident when something has happened and you're then dealing with it but you're not personally at risk but this was something that involved an ongoing situation at which you were personally at risk and into that mix became the realization that there were some members of our team who were more at risk than others for a start it was clear that this was affecting older people much more than younger people and then it was affecting people from different ethnic backgrounds in a different way. And the UK has a big uh, group of staff in the NHS who come from a BAME background. And it was becoming clear as the pictures in the news of who had died in the health service were coming out, you were going, there's a theme here. And that has been incredibly stressful to realize that there are members of your team who are so much at risk. Now, there were people who were already because of health conditions off um, and having to be shielded and unable to work. And we've done a bit of work looking at how they have felt during this. But as it's progressed, and I think we were blindsided by this, the risk to certain ethnic groups was becoming more and more apparent. And that then coincided with the Black Lives Matters protests and so in a way, we've got a really good moment to start saying we need to understand who in our staff is vulnerable and actually what have these staff experienced along the way. So when we surveyed staff about 
protective equipment, we found that our non-white staff would often say that they felt they didn't have as much protective equipment, they hadn't been trained in it as well, and they weren't confident to raise a, a query if they felt they were seeing somebody when they should have had more equipment on. Why is that? Why have we got staff who don't feel able to get the same message out there that they need help and they need um, to be, have access to the right equipment? And so I think it's given us all a bit of a shake up, which is not a bad thing. Um, and I think that will be in the end, a positive thing that comes out of this, that we will think more about what our staff are going through and the differences in our staff and how we protect them going forward. But there still is a big question for emergency uh, physicians about our shielded staff. So staff, because of health problems, who through, through no fault of their own, through the issue of a global pandemic, cannot work on the front line. Where are their careers going? What happens next to these people? Because we can never say that an emergency department is going to be a zero risk or COVID safe area. We can minimize risk. But you know, what do we say to somebody who's a uh, you know, young medic, who's got a kidney transplant, who is starting out a career in emergency medicine? What do we say to that person? And none of us really quite know the answer to that yet. Indeed, it's a very big issue for the young and as well as the older people who have been you know, giving their lives, their whole careers to emergency medicine and feel unsafe working and are unsafe working. Um, and just to sort of like, do you now just end your career? Uh, how else can we use these people, their wisdom, their experience? Um, these are, again, big questions we will hopefully be able to solve and move forward to an, hopefully a better day. Is there anything else you want to say to the members of the college or emergency physicians or nurses or paramedics everywhere in the world? I think everyone recognizes that emergency medicine has been at the heart of this response. We've worked very, very well with our intensive care colleagues, but we have all been on the front line of this in a big way. And everywhere internationally, emergency medicine people are out there dressed in the kit, um, providing immediate care to patients as they present. And they've done a phenomenal job and everyone is tired, but we all need to actually move forward and do an awful lot of changes. I think the single word that has run through all of this has been reconfiguration. We've had to reconfigure everything at sort of five minute intervals. We've had to change the way we do everything so fast and everyone has done that so well. And it's how do we make sure that we've got the energy to do that in the months ahead because we're going to have to do that again. And if we get a second wave, we're going to need to respond to that. So the big message is, if there's any downtime you can have, take it. Don't feel that you shouldn't take some downtime. Do, get some rest, try and spend some time with your family while we can. Um, and thank you for everything that everyone's done so far. Thank you, Catherine. Great words. Uh, now we'll conclude our podcast with Dr. Catherine Henderson, president of Arkham. Um, and we wish you all safe passage in the next few months. Hopefully it will only be that and take it one step at a time. Bye-bye.